0: So as you can see from the title slide tonight, I want to talk about the justification of non-consensual medical interventions. And more specifically, I want to try and argue that there could be some circumstances which might be permissible to use non-consensual medical interventions for the purposes of criminal rehabilitation. And to try and make that argument, I'm going to look at the potential moral justifications of non-consensual interventions in the context of infectious disease control and see whether any of those justifications can carry over to the case of criminal rehabilitation. So before I start just by making a few remarks about how this particular paper is fitting into the broader project I'm working on. So this is a paper based on, uh, sorry, a talk based on a paper that I'm writing with uh, Tom Douglas. As some of you will know, I'm working on his uh, project entitled Neurointerventions for Crime Prevention. And this project, we're interested in the use of direct brain interventions or neurointerventions uh, for the purpose of reducing violent impulses or other traits associated with uh, violent criminal behaviour, and then to see whether these kinds of interventions could be permissibly used uh, for the purposes of, of crime prevention. So the first thing to say is that this might seem like something of a bit of a far-fetched uh, possibility uh, to exert this kind of control over violent criminal behaviour, uh, but the first thing to acknowledge in this talk is that these kinds of technology, technologies are starting to emerge. So in a number of jurisdictions, Um, it's possible to treat violent sexual offenders with so-called chemical castration. So chemical castration involves um, giving these offenders a powerful anti-lobidinol agent which is intended to essentially eliminate their sexual desire. And the reason that some jurisdictions allow giving offenders these drugs is the hope that uh, by taking these drugs will reduce the likelihood that these offenders will go on to uh, re-offend. So The example of chemical castration is uh, in some ways quite problematic. There are a number of uh, issues regarding the efficiency of the treatment. Also, it's been linked to a number of problematic side effects. But I'm just going to use that example as a uh, a proof of principle that these technologies are perhaps on the horizon. So when I talk about uh, the kinds of neurointerventions we might be interested in, these might be in a pharmaceutical form, such as uh, those used in chemical castration, we also might be interested in uh, brain stimulation technologies such as transcranial direct current stimulation and deep brain stimulation. Maybe there are a couple of studies coming out suggesting that these uh, technologies can have effects on violent impulses. So to return to the case of chem- chemical castration, uh, let me just say a little bit about how that's currently employed in the criminal justice context. So the most common way in which jurisdictions will use chemical castration is to essentially offer uh, the intervention to offenders as a condition of their parole or in return for a reduced sentence. Uh, there are a couple of jurisdictions which mandate chemical castration as a man- mandatory part of the criminal sentence but these uh, are very much in the minority. And I suspect that the most plausible explanation for why it's the case is that most jurisdictions sign up to something like the following uh, consent requirement which Tom has described in one of his earlier papers, although he doesn't necessarily endorse it, and this uh, requirement reads that neurocorrectives can only permissively be provided with the valid consent of the offender who will undergo the intervention. This requirement draws on a prominent view uh, widely held in medical ethics that we should uh, give great importance to individual autonomy, patients we think have a right to make decisions about the kinds of medical intervention they undergo. So it seems that there's a clear reason why we might want to forbid the mandatory use of chemical castration uh, if we sign up to the consent requirement, um, insofar as these offenders clearly aren't validly consenting to the intervention. Uh, However, it might be argued that if we offer the intervention as a possible part of the criminal sentence, uh, then that might be compatible with uh, the, the consent requirement. However, things are not necessarily as easy as this. Uh, it's often been claimed that this neurocorrective offer uh, of offering offenders the opportunity to undergo the neurocorrective in return for a reduced sentence is coercive. And this in turn is problematic because coercion is commonly understood to invalidate consent. Uh, this isn't a uh, an objection that I'm actually going to deal with tonight. Uh, I think there's a, a, he- a few problems with it. But the literature in this area has reached something of a stalemate, I think. And so what I think would be a good strategy to adopt in this uh, general area is to rather than to argue that we should try and establish that the neurocorrective offer is not coercive, Uh, it's better to actually try and place a little bit of pressure on the consent requirement itself, and that's the strategy that I'm going to adopt tonight. So I want to ask, is it ever justifiable to carry out non-consensual medical interventions? And if so, can any of these justifications be invoked to justify the use of at least some non-consensual neurocorrectives? So this should make it clear that I'm arguing for quite a limited conclusion here. I'm not trying to argue that all forms of neurocorrective will be permissible in all uh, scenarios. Rather, I'm just hoping to establish there could at least be some permissible uses of these technologies. But given the wide acceptance of the consent requirement, I think that's still quite an important conclusion to draw. Okay, so before jumping into the arguments, let me just get clear on a couple of uh, bits of terminology I'm going to be invoking. So I'm going to be using a fairly broad understanding of the term medical interventions. So typically when we talk of medical interventions, uh, we mean that to refer to measures that involve some degree of bodily invasion. So pharmacotherapies and surgical procedures and the like. Uh, I'm going to extend that normal lay use Uh, So the medical interventions also refer to measures that restrict an individual's freedom of movement and association insofar as these are used for medical reasons. So I'll understand quarantine and isolation uh, to be medical interventions on that understanding. Um, I'm not trying to make any particular substantive points about similarities between these different kinds of measures here. Um, In fact, I'm going to suggest that there are some important moral differences between these two forms of uh, intervention. Uh, But when I refer to medical interventions more broadly, I mean to refer to both kinds of measures. Uh, Second, let me say something about uh, the way I'm going to be using the term non-consensual interventions. I'm going to refer to uh, two kinds of interventions as non-consensual throughout this talk. Uh, So both what Joel Feinberg has called compelled interventions and coerced interventions. So these are terms that get thrown about quite loosely, I think, in the public health ethics literature as well as the literature on non-consensual treatments more generally. Uh, So Feinberg understands an intervention to be compelled if alternatives to undergoing that intervention have been rendered impossible. So a paradigm example of this would be if I were to physically overpower a patient, uh, pin him to the floor and administer an injection, say. Um, In that case, the uh, recipient of the injection can't possibly refuse to undergo it, assuming that I can physically overpower him. In contrast, a coerced intervention is one where an alternative is not impossible, uh, but its appeal has been destroyed uh, by virtue of the fact that its cost has been increased. So a paradigm case of a coerced intervention on this account would be if I were to threaten the individual with very bad consequences if they didn't comply with my demand that they undergo a certain intervention. So I think there are some interesting differences between the ways in which these two kinds of intervention can undermine consent, but I'm not going to deal with those so much today. Uh, rather, I'm just going to say that a non-consensual intervention is any intervention performed without the valid consent of the recipient. final thing to say, with regards to both compulsion and coercion, uh, it seems plausible that individuals can place coercive pressure uh, on others without that necessarily amounting to full-blown coercion of the sort that undermines consent. So if I make a coercive threat which doesn't include a proposition to bring about particularly bad consequences, we might understand that as imposing some degree of coercive pressure without that entailing that I've invalidated someone's consent. Uh, This is going to be a little bit clearer and I'll talk about some concrete examples in a second. Okay, so let's get to some arguments. Um, When we talk about the consent requirement, just generally in medical ethics, I've already said that we can draw on this uh, long tradition about placing salience on individual autonomy. Uh, We tend to think that considerations of autonomy in medical ethics should trump those of beneficence. Uh, For instance, we think that patients have a right to refuse even life-saving treatment. What's interesting in in this context is that we're weighing considerations of autonomy against uh, what's beneficial for the individual patient. We're weighing uh, considerations of autonomy against the patient's self-interested reasons. However, in public health we're doing something different. We're weighing considerations of individual autonomy against public benefit, and so we shouldn't necessarily claim that the salience we give to autonomy in the individual clinical context is necessarily going to transfer to uh, instances in infectious disease control and public health more generally. So. In infectious disease control, we're weighing the right to autonomy, or the right to make decisions about medical treatment against potentially wide-scale harms. So the first intervention I want to talk about, uh, which has been widely used in infectious disease control, is that of vaccination. So vaccination has been responsible for numerous health benefits over uh, the past uh, century or so. So, one of the most lethal diseases in history, smallpox, was eradicated mainly due to the, the wide uh, vaccination uptake uh, that was developed in response to it. Also, today, measles and tetanus rates are far lower. Uh, and again, this is widely due to uh, the use of vaccinations. So, in an obvious sense, receiving a vaccination is going to be beneficial for uh, the individual recipient insofar as that confers immunity to a particular infectious disease for that person. Uh, However, a decision to undergo vaccination also has public health implications by virtue of the phenomenon of herd immunity. So, herd immunity refers to this phenomenon whereby once a population has (coughs) achieved a sufficient proportion of immunisation to a particular infectious disease, that can confer an indirect protection to members of that community who aren't able to be vaccinated, say, for Um, health reasons such as a compromised immune system. So even if an individual in that community isn't themselves uh, vaccinated against an infectious disease, as long as a sufficient proportion are vaccinated, then that person is unlikely to uh, be infected. And what that means is that an individual's decision to refuse vaccination may thereby pose a threat to public health at a cumulative level. And for this kind of reason, a number of jurisdictions have Impose degrees of coercive pressure on citizens to undergo vaccination. So, in the USA, uh, children must normally complete a vaccination schedule as a condition of entering public school. Uh, here in Europe, Slovenia has one of the most powerful uh, vaccination programs. Uh, they have a mandatory vaccination program for nine designated diseases where failure to comply results in a significant fine. Now, in the US, Uh, A number of states allow religious and conscientious exemption. Uh, Slovenia, however, only allows for medical exemption to that kind of program. Now, I said earlier that we can uh, understand some forms of coercive pressure uh, as not actually amounting to full-blown coercion, and this might be a case in point. Clearly, uh, in the USA and in Slovenia, uh, there are impositions of certain costs, and whether or not we think that degree of coercive pressure amounts to the sort of coercion that invalidates consent is going to depend on the extent to which uh, an individual's desire to avoid those costs is operant in their decision uh, whether or not to be vaccinated. So we can talk about that in a little more detail in, in the questions if you want. Um, but to move on to a second, perhaps less controversial example, uh, quarantine and isolation are permitted uh, almost universally in a non-consensual form. Uh, and this was apparent in the recent Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, so, quarantine and isolation both involve separating certain individuals from the rest of the community in order to prevent or limit transmission of infectious pathogens. Uh, the difference between the two, or well, as uh, the terms that are commonly used in the public health literature, uh, refers to the uh, diagnostic status of the individuals in question. So, in isolation, an individual is known to be infected with the pathogen whereas in quarantine, uh, the individual is suspected of being, but not known to be infected. So this epistemic difference between the two kinds of intervention, I think will have important implications for uh, their moral justification. We'll come back to that later. Uh, The third case that I want to talk about, of use of uh, compulsive force in uh, infectious disease control, is that of non-consensual testing, examination and treatment. There's an interesting difference between UK and US health law in in this respect. So in the UK, uh, the the legal permissibility of these forms of intervention is governed by the UK Health and Social Care Act 2008, in these particular parts, Uh, and according to that Act it's legally permissible for public health authorities to impose um, medical testing and examination on individuals who are suspected of carrying Um, an infectious disease which could cause significant harm to the population. However, it explicitly forbids the use of non-consensual treatment, uh, including vaccinations. Uh, In contrast, I've suggested that the USA allows for some degree of coercive pressure in vaccinations. More importantly, uh, in the US, public health statutes can be used to override the common law which forbids non-consensual treatments uh, in order to authorise compulsory treatments for specific diseases. So these statutes have been invoked to justify uh, compulsory treatment in the case of tuberculosis and certain sexually transmitted infections uh, for particular populations, and a uh, good example of this is the use in the military. Okay, so that's just a broad overview of some historical uses of coercion and compulsion. Uh, I'm not going to talk any more about particular historical cases. Uh, Lawrence Gostin's got a, a good discussion of this for anyone who's interested in his books going to be referenced at the end of the talk. What I want to do now is turn to the question of how, how might we go about approaching the moral justification of these kinds of interventions? So the first approach you might take, is a simple utilitarian one, and I'm just gonna raise this mainly to dismiss it. So as I'm sure most of you are aware, a general utilitarian approach to ethics is that the right action is that which maximizes the greatest uh, happiness for the greatest number, um, and so I might think on this kind of approach, it might be plausible to permit a wide range of uh, interventions designed to prevent the spread of infectious disease. Um, they're going to be permissible insofar as they are predicted to bring about at least as much aggregate happiness as any alternative course of action. However, I think the reason that that simple utilitarian approach is going to run into problems is that it fails to give adequate acknowledgement to this intuition that people have uh, regarding patient rights to make decisions about their own individual care. We believe that patients have rights that constrain the pursuit of the greater good. So a good example of this is Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous organ donor case. So In this example, uh, a doctor decides to kill an innocent patient in order to harvest organs which they can use to save five other lives. And presumably we find that there's something morally impermissible about that case. It seems that the simple utilitarian explanation is going going to falter. Now, of course, we can try and refine utilitarianism in order to account for these problems. Uh, I'm just pointing out here that simply invoking this kind of consequentialist explanation is going to run into problems. So having mentioned utilitarianism, it would be remiss not to talk a little bit about Mill's harm principle, because this is commonly invoked in public health ethics and uh, was developed in the context of a broader utilitarian theory. So according to this principle, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilised community against his will is to prevent harm to others. And it seems fairly clear why this kind of principle is going to be invoked in public health. In fact, public health seems to be a paradigm case in which we, uh, it seems permissible to exercise power in order to prevent harm to others. and It is often indeed treated as a sole uh, principle of justification for most forms of uh, interventions in infectious disease control. But it seems to me we've got to go a little bit deeper than simply the harm principle on its surface. The main reason being that Mill himself regarded this principle as providing a necessary condition of permissible interventions. It's not a sufficient condition. So the fact that an intervention can prevent harm to others isn't sufficient for establishing its moral permissibility on Mill's view. In order to do that, we need to go deeper into our description of the kinds of harms that we're preventing and the kinds of power we're exercising. Now we can go into Mill's exegesis to try and find out uh, his own views on that and how that uh, relates to his overall overall utilitarianism. I'm going to dig a little deeper into some of the more contemporary literature in this area uh, and explain two approaches that have been developed to try and flesh out the kind of idea inherent in in the harm principle. So the first is what we might term a constrained consequentialist approach. This is an approach advocated by uh, Lawrence Gostin in his book, uh, Public Health Law, Power, Duty and Restraint. So let me just quote directly from uh, the beginning of that book, where he's outlining his his general position. He writes that the prime objective of public health law is to pursue the highest possible level of physical and mental health in the population, consistent with the values of social justice. And the aim is to advance human well-being by improving health and to do so particularly by focusing on the needs of the most disadvantaged. So, it seems that Gostin endorses this broadly consequentialist account where public health law is to be interested in maximizing certain goods, but it differs from utilitarianism, I suggest, in at least two ways. The first is that Gostin seems to be interested in the distribution of well being across individuals, and that plays a role in his theory of the good. Uh, so, the utilitarian happiness uh, is what constitutes the good, and Gostin is talking about the distribution of well being. I recall in the second quote, he says that we ought to maximise the the needs of the most disadvantaged. Second, uh, it seems that he leaves open the possibility that the pursuit of good outcomes may be side-constrained. So I recall that he writes that we should pursue high levels of health in a manner that is consistent with the values of social justice. I'm going to talk about more concrete uh, principles that Gostin derives from this overall justification uh, in a second. Uh, the part to take away from that discussion is that Gostin is evoking a broadly consequentialist approach. Alternatively, um, Anne Wilkinson has claimed that we can offer a self-defence justification of non-consensual interventions in public health. Uh, so on this approach, we can understand the imposition of infectious disease control interventions as an instance of deontologically justified self-defence where an agent could be said to act in self-defence if he is acting to prevent another agent, the attacker, from harming him. Now Wilkinson himself doesn't go into too much detail about the way in which a deontological account might justify acts of self-defence, and uh, I'm going to follow him in not going into too much detail either. Um, Broadly speaking, though, the way in which deontologists tend to approach self-defence is either by claiming that attackers have either forfeited their rights or that their rights against harm have certain exception clauses built into them. Uh, Other theorists claim that the reason why we may act in self-defense against attackers is that it is in some way just to do so, perhaps because the attacker is culpable or merely indeed causally responsible for uh, threatening harm. Okay, so I think the thing to take from these two different kinds of approaches to non-consensual interventions in public health is that we really seem to be dealing with an issue there in which consequentialist intuitions are really coming into conflict with our more deontological intuitions. I've talked about this widespread view that individuals should have a right to autonomy and a right to make decisions about their own individual medical interventions, Uh, but in public health we're also talking about prevention of very severe harms and This is obviously going to give rise to certain consequentialist intuitions. It doesn't seem that we're going to be able to resolve that conflict by simply appealing to a a pure consequentialist theory or a pure deontological theory. And rather than try and settle that debate, which I think would require a whole different paper, uh, what I've tried to do in this paper I'm running with Tom is develop what we might term five desiderata to guide assessments of the moral permissibility of non-consensual interventions. We intend these desiderata to be broadly amenable to both uh, consequentialist and deontological approaches to these questions, although the overall theoretical framework you, you take is going to influence the way in which you interpret these desiderata, as well as the way in which you weigh them against each other. And in fact, the, the claim that these desiderata are amenable to both approaches also suggests that it might be quite difficult to draw a clear and cut distinction between uh, the self-defence approach that Wilkes invokes and uh, Gostin's constrained consequentialism. So let me just briefly outline them now. So the first desiderata pertains to the gravity of the prevented harm. It seems plausible to claim that the more serious the harm that an intervention is going to prevent, uh, the easier it is to justify the intervention. And it seems like there are going to be three aspects to explaining how grave a harm is. Uh, so first we might talk about the kind of harm that uh, an intervention is expected to prevent. So for instance in the case of Ebola we're talking about uh, potentially fatal uh, uh, potentially fatal infectious disease. And so we're talking about um, a particularly grave kind of harm that we're seeking to prevent. Second we might talk about the scope of the harm. So how many people is uh, the infectious disease likely to affect. And third, we might talk about the predictability of the harm. How likely is it that the infectious disease is going to bring about uh, the kinds of harm associated with it? And Ebola, it seemed that this was going to be an infectious disease which was going to bring about a particularly grave kind of harm to a large number of people with a high degree of predictability. Second, when we're making our moral assessments of permissible, non-consensual interventions, we might talk about uh, the effectiveness of the intervention in question in preventing the harm. Again, it seems plausible to claim that the more effective interventions are going to be easier to justify. Uh, Third, we should also take into account the opportunity cost of the intervention. So any time we engage in a public health intervention, we're going to be using resources which could be uh, used to engage in other forms of prevention. So it's going to seem that interventions with lower costs are going to be easy, easier to justify. So these first three desiderata are broadly amenable to more consequentialist modes of thinking. Uh, a strict deontologist may not be moved by the claim that there is uh, cost effective and uh, efficacious intervention to prevent a seriously grave harm if that intervention nonetheless violates important rights. However the next two Uh, ziderata are perhaps more amenable to the self-defense approach that uh, Wilkinson advocates and indeed draws on principles which are familiar to the self-defense theories. So the fourth ziderata is that the intervention should be the least restrictive of the available alternatives for preventing harm and fifth uh, the intervention must be proportionate to the threat that the recipient of the intervention poses. So both these principles as I said are familiar and widely used in the self-defense literature it's also worth noting though that Gostin invokes both of these principles in his consequentialist uh, kind of approach so I'm going to talk a little bit more detail about the fourth and fifth desiderata here because they raise uh, important questions of interpretation depending on the theoretical framework in which they're used so the least restrictive alternative desiderata raises the question of well, how should we define restrictiveness? I suggest that that's going to depend on whether you want to invoke this desiderata from either a deontological or consequentialist perspective. So, deontologists might claim that the way in which you define restrictiveness is going to depend on the extent to which intervention violates the moral rights uh, recipient's moral rights. Um, alternatively, on a more consequentialist reading, we might suggest that in, uh, restrictiveness depends on the extent to which intervention harms the recipient, and then these harms can be weighed in an overall consequentialist calculation. These uh, descriptions are going to become a bit more concrete when we talk about uh, concrete examples in the next section, so I'm going to move on uh, to proportionality. Again, this is most strongly associated with self-defence justifications, Uh, and in this literature, whether proportionality (coughs) obtains depends on the gravity of the harms inflicted by an act of self-defence and the harm that the attacker can be expected to inflict in the absence of self-defence. So, this uh, desiderata raises the question of, well, how are we to assess degrees of proportionality here? When is a harm proportionate um, in self defence? Um, there are two kinds of views which we might point to uh, from the self defence literature. Uh, the first is what I might term the equivalent harm view. So some theorists in self defence claim that uh, harm, uh, harms carried out in self defence are only proportionate if they are equivalent to the harm which you are seeking to defend yourself from. So on that kind of view it would only be permissible for me to kill in self-defence if I'm defending myself from a fatal threat or from a harm that is equivalent to to death. However, a number of theorists claim that we can go beyond that merely equivalent harm thesis. They claim that we can be justified in imposing greater harm on attackers by virtue of other factors associated with the justification of self-defence. So if we think that uh, self-defence is justified by considerations of justice We might think that the culpability or responsibility of the attacker uh, gives us reason to allow greater harms to be imposed on attackers. Uh, Rights-based theorists might claim there's an important asymmetry between rights of attackers and defenders, which justifies that interpretation of proportionality. Uh, Finally, in this section, um, we might also think about how proportionality could work on a consequentialist kind of account. So I've already said that constrained consequentialist approach requires assessing the net harmfulness of interventions. So in some way we can already understand proportionality as being indirectly incorporated into consequentialist accounts insofar as uh, less harmful interventions are going to be easier to justify when we're talking about the prevention of lesser harms and vice versa. For more consequentialist approaches that incorporate fairness into the conception of the good, could regard harms to culpable agents as less inimical to the good than harms to innocent agents. So it seems plausible uh, that consequentialists could also endorse something like a view of proportionality that goes beyond the equivalent harm thesis. Okay, so that's the the main theoretical background I wanted to to, to draw on. And I want to see how these desiderata uh, come to conclusions about the moral permissibility of non-consensual interventions in infectious disease control, and whether those kind of justifications carry over to the use of neurocorrectives? So let's start with the gravity of the harm. Sorry, I've got slightly misaligned there. Um, Like I said, in the case of infectious disease control, we're often talking about the prevention of serious harms. We're talking about potentially fatal diseases which will affect large numbers of people um, and which are highly likely to occur, that we can predict with reliability. So let's talk first about the kind of harm that we might seek to prevent with neurocorrectives in comparison. So it seems plausible that the kind of harm that we're dealing with is at least comparable to many forms of harms that we're preventing in infectious disease control. Now, violent criminal offenders often carry out crimes that cause significant physical and mental harms. A furthermore, we might also point to indirect harms caused by reoffending. So in the UK, the cost to the taxpayer. Or reoffending is estimated to be about nine and a half to thirteen billion pounds a year. But it seems we're going to try and claim there's an analogy between uh, interventions in infectious disease control and uh, neurocorrectives, uh, according to the gravity of harm prevented. There's going to be two important uh, disanalogies, it seems. So the first is that there is an epistemological problem. So in infectious disease control, we're using interventions to prevent harms that are highly likely to occur in the absence of the intervention and that we can predict with uh, a degree of reliability. The second is a problem relating to the scope of the harm that we're looking to prevent. So infectious disease control, we're using interventions to prevent a larger aggregate magnitude of harm, it seems. So is this going to be fatal to the kind of analogy we might try and draw between infectious disease and the use of neurocorrectives? So, Let me take the epistemological problem first. The key question here seems to be, well, to what extent can we reliably predict that a violent criminal offender will reoffend in the absence of a neurocorrective? And it seems that there's uh, scope for scepticism here. Uh, so there are a number of instruments that uh, criminal justice authorities might employ to try and evaluate the risk of re-offending amongst individual offenders, uh, but none of them seem to be reliably accurate. Indeed, in a recent overview, some authors claim that Uh, such instruments cannot be used to estimate an individual's risk of future violence with any reasonable degree of certainty and should be used with great caution or not at all. So hardly a ringing endorsement. Um, But the problem seems to be for claiming that this is going to be a faithful disanalogy is that we often encounter a similar epistemological problem in the context of uh, infectious disease control. So consider, for example, uh, non-consensual interventions on individuals who are thought to pose a threat of infecting other individuals in the community where that threat is based on a prediction that they're going to engage in a certain kind of behaviour. So when we talk about non-consensual treatment of sexually transmitted infections, for instance, uh, if we think it's justifiable to impose that kind of treatment, we're essentially making a prediction that that individual is not going to engage in a kind of behaviour that is necessary for the transmission of the pathogen. And it seems unlikely that we can make a prediction of an individual's uh, decision to engage in sexual behavior, knowing they're carrying this uh, pathogen, with a greater degree of reliability than we can predict that a criminal's going to uh, reoffend. offend uh, The second point to raise is that the epistemological problem seems to raise this problem of false positives. The problem about our inability to reliably predict uh, which offenders are going to reoffend <coughs> seems to stem, at least in part, Uh, by the fact that we're worried about making false positive assessments and this we might think is not going to be a problem raised in infectious disease control but quarantine is an example of an intervention that we've used which undeniably involves uh, making false positive assessments like i said in the earlier slide uh, in quarantine we don't know whether the individual we're intervening upon actually poses a threat to public health whether they actually Uh, carry the infectious pathogen. So it seems in quarantine we're going to be making these false positive assessments all the time. So what about the scope problem? Well, the scope problem only represents a disanalogy between infectious disease and use of neurocorrectives only if two empirical claims are true. First, that the scope of the harm caused by individual criminal offenders is likely to be small. And second, that permissible non-consensual IDC interventions always prevent harms with large scope. It seems that neither is going to be universally true. It seems possible to come up with counterexamples to both these uh, empirical claims. So consider first this idea that the scope of harm caused by individual criminal offenders is likely to be small. Uh, it seems clear that um, we might be able to convict certain criminal offenders who, pay, who pose a threat which is going to have a very wide scope, so considering um, terrorist offenders, for instance. And it seems that as technology develops, Uh, individual criminal offenders are going to be able to cause harms of much wider scope than may currently be the case. Uh, second empirical claim, is it really true that uh, non-consensual IDC interventions are permissible um, always prevent harms of large scope? Again, it seems that we can question this. So, One of the more recent drives in public health ethics um, to do with uh, infectious disease control has been the use of mandatory flu vaccinations for healthcare workers. But even though... Uh, these uh, um, measures are widely endorsed, some of the evidence seems to suggest that mandatory flu uh, vaccinations uh, prevent comparatively few deaths um, given that the vaccinations being uh, mandated uh, are able to prevent forms of flu that are linked to very few deaths comparatively. So I think it's possible to put pressure on both these uh, empirical claims. So given time, I'm going to pass very quickly over the second and third desiderata pertaining to effectiveness and opportunity costs. We can talk about that in discussion afterwards. I'm just going to assume, for the time being, that neurocorrectives could be highly effective in achieving the aim of preventing recidivism, and that they could do so of low opportunity costs. I want to finish by talking about the fourth and fifth desiderata, because this is where I think the real philosophical meat is. So, in public health ethics, when we're talking about the least restrictive alternative available to us, uh, we're often talking about interventions where there are violations of a clear sort to distinguish. And the difficulty that we have in establishing which uh, alternative is really the most restric- restrictive is that it's very difficult to make comparisons of restrictiveness when different harms and rights are in play. Of course, this won't always be the case. Uh, sometimes we can Uh, measure interventions along one dimension, so let's take an example from infectious disease control, it seems that we could compare the use of directly observed therapy where individuals are uh, able to go to a centre where they're observed uh, undergoing a medical intervention themselves, Um, that seems to be less restrictive than compelling that individual to undergo the same sort of intervention so there's a lesser degree of bodily invasion it seems, they're not being compelled in the same way that they are in directly observed therapy But when we talk about interventions that violate different kinds of rights or violate rights of a different uh, number of people, it seems difficult to make these comparisons of restrictiveness. And the second problem that we uh, encounter when considering uh, which intervention is the least restrictive alternative available is well, what are the alternatives uh, that we have given the aims of the intervention? And whilst in uh, public health ethics, it seems that the aims of the intervention we're employing are going to be relatively clear. Uh, the same might not necessarily be true in the context of criminal justice. So, with those problems in mind, let's consider well, what are the alternatives to using neurocorrectives to prevent recidivism uh, amongst violent criminal offenders? Well, it seems at the minute, really, there are only two candidates. So, we can talk about psychosocial rehabilitation. Uh, and incarceration as the main methods that are employed to prevent recidivism. Um, So let's talk about those. How do these interventions weigh up in terms of restrictiveness insofar as we can make those kind of assessments uh, to the use of non-consensual neurocorrectives? So it seems that there are broadly three types of harm or right that we might talk about uh, when making this kind of assessment. The first is an individual's right to freedom of movement and association. So incarceration it seems, uh, involves a violation of this right or an infringement of this right. Um, in incarceration, we're restricting the ability of individuals to move freely and to associate with whom they please. Uh, in comparison, neurocorrectives, it seems, wouldn't actually involve that much of an infringement on this particular right. It might require that offenders attend a, a monthly uh, appointment at a treatment centre to receive their neurocorrective. But this is clearly a very different kind of infringement on the right to freedom of movement and association than that which would be involved in incarceration. So, in that dimension, it seems that neurocorrectives actually score a bit better than, than incarceration and perhaps uh, comparable to the use of psychosocial uh, rehabilitation. I think the claim that neurocorrectives are likely to be more restrictive uh, than incarceration or psychosocial rehabilitation. Uh, is going to be grounded in appeal to something like a right to bodily integrity. So we might think that the reason that a neurocorrective is always going to be a more restrictive alternative than incarceration or psychosocial rehabilitation is that it involves a degree of bodily invasion. It is, after all, a, a medical intervention. And that kind of view seems to be implicit in the public health law in the UK. So I talked to you about the Health and Social Care Act earlier, and I noted that in that law, uh, UK public health authorities are allowed to impose non consensual quarantine uh, and isolation, which involves restrictions on uh, freedom of movement and association, but it explicitly forbids the use of non consensual treatment, um, whether that's vaccination or other kinds of pharmacotherapies. So the public health law in the UK seems to uh, regard a right to bodily integrity as more fundamental, it seems, in the freedom of movement uh, and association. However, Tom, in some of his other work on this project, has I think convincingly argued that this is actually a false view. It seems that uh, our our interest in freedom of movement and association should really be treated on a par with our interest in bodily integrity. Uh, Ability to form close personal relationships and to pursue many valuable goals in life seems to be far more dependent on our being able to freely move and associate uh, than our concerns with bodily (coughs) integrity. But the third way in which you might claim that um, neurocorrectives are more restrictive than incarceration or psychosocial rehabilitation uh, might be grounded in an appeal to a right to something like mental integrity. So, broadly said, that mental integrity refers to a freedom to think one's own thoughts and to have one's own personality. That's the way Martha Farrow puts it. And it seems that neurocorrectives plausibly bring about profound mental effects and directly through the biological modulation of brain states in which they supervene. And this is clearly, it seems, something that's very different uh, from the kinds of harms involved in incarceration or indeed psychosocial rehabilitation. Now I think a lot of the literature in, in this kind of area is trying to deal with this phenomenon of mental integrity and what it might mean and I think there's ways in which you could put pressure on the concept But let's suppose that we think that neurocorrectives are always going to be more restrictive by virtue of the kinds of harms they impose to do with mental integrity. I think the key point uh, to acknowledge when we're making these kind of claims is that that's not necessarily going to be the end of the matter. So I talked earlier about these five desiderata and we talked about uh, the ways in which they should contribute to our moral assessments. Something I didn't mention but I think it's important to point out now is that it seems that there's going to be trade-offs between these desiderata And one key one is going to be the fact that it seems highly likely that, in many cases, a more restrictive intervention is going to be more effective in achieving the aims that we want to achieve, whether that is in infectious disease control or in uh, the context of criminal justice. This actually returns to Mill's justification of the harm principle. So I talked about the harm principle as being a necessary but not sufficient condition of permissible intervention. We'll actually dig deeper into Mill's justification of the harm principle and the role that it plays in his moral philosophy. Uh, in order to cash out the kinds of harms that it's permissible to carry uh, sorry the kinds of intervention it's permissible to carry out and the kinds of harms that we ought to be seeking to prevent, uh, we need to be making assessments of whether the intervention we're carrying out is sufficiently effective in achieving our aim. and this is a point that uh, Wendy Palmer has I think convincingly argued in a recent paper. <coughs> So, the point of that is merely claiming that an alternative is the least restrictive um, alternative is going to be sufficient if we're not thinking about the effectiveness of the interventions in question. However, it might be plausible to think that in some scenarios, in infectious disease control and indeed in criminal justice, we might have a slightly more restrictive alternative which is just far more effective in achieving the aims that we want our intervention to achieve. So is there a way in which uh, an opponent of the neurocorrective could respond to that? Well, it seems that the proportionality principle could come in here. So it might be claimed that, well, even if neurocorrectives are going to be more effective in preventing recidivism, uh, despite the fact that they're more restrictive, maybe they're impermissible because we can stipulate a threshold of proportionality, whereby interventions above this threshold are going to be too restrictive, even if they're more effective. I think the plausibility of this move and the, uh, the strength of the argument that we can develop from it is going to depend uh, on which account of proportionality uh, we're going to invoke and that, as I suggested earlier, depends on our broader moral framework. So think first about the equivalent harm view. Uh, so on that view, neurocorrectives are only proportionate if they're expected to prevent the same degree of harm that they impose on the recipient. And if we think violations of mental integrity are particularly grave kinds of harms, then it seems there's going to be very limited scope for permissible neurocorrective use. Uh, Alternatively, if we think that we can go uh, beyond the equivalent harm view in our account of proportionality, perhaps by invoking considerations through culpability and responsibility uh, of offenders for the future threat that they pose, there might be plausible to claim that neurocorrectives that impose greater harm on an offender than that which he poses may be permissible. So on this kind of account of proportionality, Even if violations of mental integrity are far more grave than the threat that an offender themselves individually poses, we might still claim that neurocorrectives could be proportionate. Okay, so I've covered quite a lot of ground there, and I don't think that this discussion should be taken to reach any precise concrete conclusion about a particular neurocorrective. I think the best lesson to take from this discussion is that the, in, the invocation of the consent requirement, which I discussed at the beginning of this paper, shouldn't be the end of our discussions about the use of non-consensual neurocorrectives. It should really be the beginning of a discussion which invokes considerations about the kinds of rights that are in play when we discuss uh, the right to autonomy in medical context, but also the kinds of harms that we are hoping that these kind of inter- interventions uh, could prevent. So I'll stop there. Thanks. <coughs>